Hey everybody, this is Rob Liefeld. Welcome to another edition of Rob Observations. Hope you are doing well. Hope your weekend was awesome. It is the uh, day after Easter here. We had a Loki trailer this morning that hit because pop culture never, ever rests. And, and that's what we do here. We do all the pop culture, all the comic books, all the cartoons, all the movies, all the streaming. We talk it all over because that's our life, right? That's our life. It seems like it is. We got a packed, packed, packed show today. I got I got a lot on my mind. I got a lot to share. Hopefully, you'll be interested in 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 at least one of these topics that I uh, I, I I put on the table here. But the interesting thing is, in regards to the pop culture of it all, I was reading a uh, a, a newspaper article yesterday morning. I I still read the newspaper quite often, whether it's online or physically, and uh, and and. A guy was supposing that uh, pop culture is now culture. There's no reason to even put the pop on it anymore. It's 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 combined, and pop culture has become our culture. And so many, uh, as so many of you, I gathered with family safely with protocols. Most of us have uh, done double vaccines in our family, so I definitely want to get across the point that we have absolutely done uh, everything in our power to be as safe as possible when we gathered yesterday to see each other for the first time in, in you know, last Easter was canceled. So this was our first Easter in, in two years. So uh, as, as we got together and I visited with nephews, um, some of which are very small, I really wanted to get their take on what they were seeing. I'd rather, you know, sorry, I would rather hear what an 11-year-old thought of Godzilla versus King Kong or Winter Soldier than someone my age because I'm always looking to absorb what the younger generation has to say, how they see things, how they process. I just know that this weekend, as I as I watched Godzilla vs. King Kong um, three times, maybe more, it was on kind of a constant loop. I even, you know, rode my stationary bike watching kind of uh, Kong in, in the hollow earth all the way to, to the end of the movie. It's great. I still can't get over how immaculately rendered and how brilliantly... Uh, Godzilla and Kong look and Mecha Godzilla. The, the realism in this stuff, the close-ups on their faces, are are just a, the, the highest form of execution in regards to the C, the, the the computer graphics art that we've ever seen. It it is unbelievable how advanced what we are seeing. So of course I am looking at footage of the 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 Kong Godzilla battle that I saw when I was a kid. Um, you know, nine years old, eight years old on a black and white television with that goofy looking King Kong um, get up. And, 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 and when I was a kid, it didn't, it didn't look like a goofy King Kong get up. It looked like, oh my gosh, it's King Kong and he's battling this Godzilla. And they looked a lot cooler than they do now because I saw it through young eyes. I saw it through kids' eyes. So I couldn't imagine if I'm at 53 feeling a surge, a jolt of just adrenaline and thrill over seeing Kong um, battle Godzilla and, and let me tell you I'm, I'll, I'll be honest man when God, Mecha Godzilla powers up his thrusters to either fire his arm at like super speed or to leap into the the, the punch more more effectively that 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 is just freaking awesome I was like wow that's awesome I love how you you knew those things I mean I've watched it so many times when they fire up he's getting ready to go into the mega punch oh so great so. My nephews and my, uh, my, my oldest nephew is, is, uh, going to SC, USC out here in Southern California. And he, he's all, he's like my kids been raised on the MCU and these DC movies. So all, all of this stuff was covered and, and it really, 
really drove home the point. I mean, obviously my, my 11 year old, uh, nephew and, and nine year old nephew lo- loved King Kong Godzilla, loved Kong Godzilla. They actually saw it on a big screen out in the desert. Um, and, 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 uh, they, they just, it, it blew their mind as I, you know, knew it would, as I, as I, you know, assumed my mind would be blown at their age even more. I'd have to pick pieces of my mind up off the ground if I saw what I just saw on HBO Max or if I saw it in a theater as I intend to do eventually. As I, it, it, I mean, I, I just, again, it was fun to hear them say what they liked and express their favorite fights, <clears throat> their favorite battles, Hollow Earth, all that stuff. Very anxious, you know, and, and hey, HBO Max, Warners, if you have even one single person who listens to this, they want more. They want more Hollow Earth. They want more, you know, they want more MonsterVerse. They want more. That 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 definitely did the trick. And, and, and I think it also goes to show, like, not everything has to dangle on a what comes next. They, they sealed off the story and there's no reason a new chapter can't begin. But it was almost kind of like, hey, we're kind of done with this. What do you think of that? Well, people don't want to be done with it. But we, we, we sit around and, and at one point everybody said, you know, shared what their favorite shows that they were watching. Adults and kids alike. And uh, several of the kids said Falcon, Winter Soldier. One said WandaVision. And uh, one of them said the Snyder Cut of Justice League. I mean, it's, 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 it's four hours. It's like four episodes. It counts, right? So really pop culture has become the culture. It's really it's really crazy to, that, that we live in this world and we can all talk about it so freely because I'm going to tell you, uh, and, and some of you may relate to this. Some of you actually may, this may hit home. When I was a kid growing up, reading and consuming comics, it wasn't until high school that I was, um, I had to be more on the down low. Why did I have to be more on the down low? Why did I use that phraseology? Well, <clears throat> I wanted to be, you know, I wanted to fit in just like so many of us. I wanted to blend in. I wanted to be, I wanted my cool friends to think I was cool. And so I hid my uh, love of comics and it was easy to do because those comics lived in my, you know, um, closet and uh, in, in my drawers. And I would go home and, and, and on weekends and uh, evenings, I'd, I'd interact with them on my, on my terms, my level. Um, but I was taking drawing courses and towards my junior year, I was taking on um, project assignments and that was um, to draw, you know, sequential art pages of which I had to really battle with my art teacher who thought it was not a good idea to do that. He didn't think there was a future in it. He was not informed as to the world of comic books as much as I had been because I had been due, you know, as I've said on the show several times to so many different signings and and shows and, and store appearances that I was able to talk with these adults about what they did. I mean, again, when I spoke to George Perez, when I spoke to Bob Layton, John Romita Jr., Art Adams, Neil Adams, these were adults. These were adults who were telling me how I could break in as a kid and showed me the rope, showed me the paper. Again, when you see the paper with the blue line on it for the first time, and it's, you know, 1981, you're, you're blown away by that. You're absolutely 100% just completely and totally blown away by that. And, 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 and so, so, you know, I, I had, I had a, a wide array of teachers and, uh, and, and, and at, I had people who were really, um, just, interested in, in helping me succeed, but, but not my art teacher who didn't believe that, um, I, I think it, that that was a valid path to, to go down, but nonetheless, it, it was the first time I really exposed, um, my absolute adoration for comic books and my desire to be a comic book artist. But, but that was only in the context of that class. And I didn't really let it bleed out of that class. And <clears throat> why am I telling you the confessions of a, of, of a comic book nerd? 
Um, that's what I am. I've all, I always have been. People in the know, people in the inner circle, they knew it. But as I got older and I got more comfortable showing it, I'll tell you why. One of my friends, big superstar uh, college uh, football player out here in the Southland, uh, I was over at his house on a, on a Saturday and I had a comic book interview magazine, not even a comic book magazine. It was a comic book interview magazine talking about the impending arrival of John Byrne on DC's Superman with the big relaunch. And my buddy, again, he showed his true colors, which were he thought comics were childlike things and associated it with maybe more of an embarrassing viewpoint. He said, oh, man, why I always got to be why I always got to be like reading comic books. Come on, man. Come on, man. And it was it was understood, like, dude, you're embarrassing me. Put that away. Don't let everybody else see what you're doing here. It was a group of us. We were watching a movie. We were watching sports. And I pulled out of my knapsack my amazing heroes. I wanted to read it. And you're like, ah, oh, that guy's a dick. Nah, he's not. He was just re reflective. He was a really great guy. Good friend. But it, it speaks more to the stigma. The stigma of comic books that they had. And, and, and so when you hear me speak of the fact that I... Can't believe we just move in a world where our biggest acting assignments are superhero roles, and the comic book movies rule the land. And uh, I mean, again, Star Wars was out there. People were Star Wars fans. People loved Star Wars, but Star Wars was its own thing. It wasn't a comic book per se. It was a movie. People knew it as a movie at that point. You know, it had it had had three movies and maybe an Ewok holiday special by that time, but. But uh, and some cart, you know, the, the the cartoons, the Ewoks and the droids cartoons. But but to the mass culture, the, the their interaction with Star Wars was three movies. They were hits. We all knew who they were. But they didn't have the stigma of comic books. Somehow pulling, pulling out a comic book with the two staples in between it um, and flipping through it was a childish endeavor. It spoke to maybe your mental, um, you know, uh, you were stagnant mentally, or or you were you were trapped in, in in some childlike emotional state. But you know, it wasn't the thing that you wanted to share. I had I wanted my friends on the football team, and I wanted my friends, you know, at school, and I wanted you know my friends in all aspects of my life to not judge me that I was so passionate about this. And again, I, I felt like I had plenty of time in the day to interact with comic books, um, but I certainly couldn't drive to school as maybe some of you do, and listen to a comic book podcast. I couldn't drive to school and have the entertainment report cover all of the different roles that are out there and people are fighting to be in, okay? I, I, it, it's a different world. That, that, I, I mean, again, the, the idea that I could make my 20-minute drive, I went to a private school, it was a good 20, 25-minute drive on, on, a, on an easy day, and I would love to have listened to podcasts twice a week, uh, every day, but there's so many of them, pile them up, talk about you know comic books, comic book movies, comic book shows, that did not exist. And so it, it, I would say comic books were semi-stigmatized and children of the 60s would, would know better than me and children of the 70s, like me, know that they were kind of, again, had a childish association with them. So when we live in a world where all the cool kids, um, all the kids on, it, it doesn't matter, tennis, football, rugby, basketball, baseball, Somebody's wearing a Wolverine shirt, a Marvel Universe shirt, a Spider-Man shirt, a Deadpool shirt, a Batman shirt, a Green Lantern shirt. Uh, they're, they're rocking gear. They've got hats. They've got folders. They, I mean, it's out there everywhere. It's, 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 it, it's at Target. It's on every aisle. Seemingly, it's in the, tra it's in the, it's in the greeting cards. It's in the, uh, it's in the blankets. You can go and get Marvel blankets. I got a Deadpool blanket at Target, okay? It's got a nice little, like, like nice, nice little 
blanket keeper that it comes, you know, comes with, like, like, like that you open up and take the blanket out of. I mean, the packaging on this stuff is great. Obviously, it lives in the toy aisles. It's in the video game aisles. You know, that's that's why I've I've said so often how Deadpool was able to break through in video games because video games is this kind of the most accepted, most celebrated medium for all of this, in my opinion, even more so. And I think the the data will will show that the the, the gameplay is even higher than the movie viewing. And when you've got all these superheroes, which their 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 powers are perfect for video games. So so this this culture now openly embraces superheroes. And it is fun to watch. There is zero resentment, just 100% happiness that my nephews of 9 and 11 and my nephew of 19 and my sons of 20 and 18 and all of their friends are into comic books and that my wife watches comic book shows and my my sister-in-law. And, and, and it, it's just, it's so broad and it really speaks to what I said I read in the paper has pop culture become the, all caps, the culture. And I think... At this point, we can safely say it has. It has. Uh, uh, re- really, you know, to the fact that, again, when it comes to the box office and the streaming roles and the numbers they're getting and the numbers that we see them boast about and they want us to see how much people are being driven to this stuff, it really has become the culture. So that is the opening of, 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 of today's show, just really dwelling on how I grew up concealing my love of comic books because uh, I, I wanted to be accepted. I wanted to fit in. And they they had a stigma to them. And now, zero stigma. Zero stigma whatsoever. Completely celebrated the achievements of comic books. And, as we'll get to later, hopefully the continued achievement of comic book creators will continue to elevate this entire art form. This brilliant American art form of comic books. So, what I want to do, something I've never done in, 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 in previous podcasts, but I am going to tell you a story today. And we're going to... We're going to... Of course, I've told you stories, but never like this. This is going to be labeled a blind item, a blind item, okay? Now, a blind item used to be something that I read in the gossip pages and and in the sports pages. And a blind item allows you to pass along the news uh, of of an event without identifying all the players. And the reason I'm choosing to do this today, I live this. I'm going to tell you stuff that I sat through myself. I'm not going to name all the players because, as you can see, it could be potentially embarrassing for the players involved. I actually went to great lengths to contact my former attorney. He's retired now. Really run down this case with him again. Get the names right. Get the judgment correct. Uh, did all that. I, I, I uh, sent an email to Matt Hawkins, who I asked, uh, who was an editor for me. He's been at Top Cow for almost 25 years, maybe longer, but he was an editor for me about six, seven years. I gave him his first break in comic books. Matt's a great guy. Works really hard. Obviously writes a ton of books as well. Uh, he has an entire library of comics that he's written for Top Cow, so you should check those out. Um, I wanted to verify with him a couple names, so I did my minimal research, even having been through the guy, having been the guy that sat through this. But and I'm going to go really slow so that I don't say the names. But this is a story you have never heard me tell before, and you're going to want to hear this because it's crazy. And 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 that's gone. It's part part of the show. I I I feel the need to tell entertaining stories now. Not all my stories are going to be told because, guys, there's this thing called a memoir, okay? And I'm going to write one one day, and it's going to be way better than this podcast. It's going to be the barn burner of page turners, okay? Because I got way more to say than what I've said on here because it's fun. It's been a fun life. And and this morning on Good Morning America, there was a country singer, and I don't know the country singer. Uh, won't, won't, I saw her name, but I for, for this purpose, again, I'm going to keep this 
unnamed, but she was promoting a brand new memoir. And I'm like, this, this person isn't even 40 and they're writing a memoir. I, I'm 53. I have no intention of writing my memoir yet. I'm like, I'm going to live, live some more life. But we're getting memoirs from people in their 30s. I mean, good God, some people in their 20s are writing memoirs. I mean, literally, some of these these kids who grew up on Nickelodeon and Disney and some of these, you know, they're 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 fine, they're feeling the need. And look, if it sells, it sells. If you want to read it, you want to read it. That's you know, you be the judge. You you know, but 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 the bottom line is there is kind of a light that goes off that goes. You're writing a memoir and you're not even 40 years old. But man, so life has been that like richly lived. For you at 40 to, to, or 38 to, to commit to writing this memoir. And so again, I, I watched this as I was writing my stationary by going, wow, memoir, memoirs before, uh, before, uh, before 40. Wow. So, so yeah, my, I've saved some good stuff, but today you're going to, so let's get to this blind item. You're going to enjoy this. There was a, uh, an agency, a comic book agency. You don't hear me talk about comic book agencies very much because they're not as, uh, they're just not dominant there isn't like a uh rival agencies like there is in the entertainment business or in the sports business that um you know represent all the big giant talent there's not a caa with its tom hanks with its tom cruise with steven spielberg against uh wme with the rock and ryan reynolds and matt damon and ben affleck and and then gersh and uta and icm all these battling agencies and somebody somewhere okay everybody's got some sort of representation or they've got their big high-powered attorney or maybe a high-powered manager, but everybody's got somebody who speaks for them and looks out for them. In comic books, it really hasn't been the way to go because the 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 amount of dollars to be carved up in comics has never been seen as generous enough to include uh, management cuts and agency cuts. But this agency, primarily this comic book agency, marketed um, all manner of writers, artists, writers, mainly the guys who who ran the agency, they marketed themselves as writers, um, artists, uh, inkers, colorists, and, and they primarily uh, promoted and pushed foreign talent. They, they, it was primarily foreign talent that, that, that they would... Um, put into jobs at Marvel and DC and, and Wildstorm and Extreme Studios. And there was a period given our, uh, our, our, how prolific our studio was becoming for my studio. Extreme Studios was at its peak in 94 to 96, late 93, all the way through 96. We were, we were producing 22 books a month, 22 times 22. Do the math. That's how much interior pages we were producing easily over 400 uh, pages of material every month was going out the door headed to press. That's not counting covers. That's not counting ads. I mean, we we were really a well-oiled machine. We had gotten it down. We had um, great editors, Eric Stevenson, Matt Hawkins, Kurt Hathaway were all acting on, on in, in, in different capacity as editors to keep all the trains running. And we had a lot of fresh, awesome talent. We've mentioned them here before. Jeff Matsuda, Marat. Michaels, uh, Dan Frega, Chap Yap, Todd Nock, the list goes on and on and on. Mark Pajarillo, I don't want to leave anybody out. Richard Horry, uh, you know, Stephen Platt, myself. We, we, we just had a lot of guys firing on all cylinders that were, that were putting these books out. Well, this agency um, had really, uh, had a couple of cornerstone talents that were getting a lot of attention, but 
but they had a lot of clients who could seemingly hit their deadlines. That was their big selling point. And if you're looking to keep your books on track, and if you're looking to keep that talent, you know, your, your, your comics on time, then we made the decision to dip our toe into this agency's talent pool. And as the talent pool continued to perform for us, we added more and more and more of their talent to our uh, line of books. Because again, that there was just no room for slip up and anybody that we could get in to do a story arc or maybe take over a book or maybe help launch one, we were all for. So their marquee talent, the marquee talent that this agency represented was set to launch an important book for us. And yet I would read after we have um, signed this marquee talent to do our book that this marquee talent is seemingly now do, doing more books than ours. And we are paying a premium at Extreme Studios. I've told you this again and again and again. I have the, I have all of the checks, all of the receipts that we wrote over all those periods. Um, I have had to refer to them in the past for different data and different I information as as we've created all these different um, organ organizational sheets. And and I, I I look back, I see the checks, I see the amount of the checks. I'm very proud that I took really good care of everybody who worked for us. Everyone got a generous page rate. If, if someone were to say that Extreme Studios, and they have uh, paid the best rates um, during the 90s, they would not be wrong. That would be 100% correct. I tried to exceed um, inkers, colorist, penciler, writer rates across the board. Paid more than competitive rates, paid many times better than competitive rates. So we were going to pay this marquee piece of talent that the agency um, utilize, we were going to pay this gentleman a very nice sum of money because he was considered the name of the agency, the kind of the biggest shining star in their, um, in their bullpen of talent. And so, but then I immediately read that they had basically sold him off to do other books. So I was concerned. And of course we contacted the agency and the American representative, representative, as well as the, um, overseas representative, the overseas representative, was on the same continent and and in many cases in uh, in capacity, physical capacity to most of these talents. Because as we get further into the seven or eight different artists that we were utilizing to hit these deadlines, and, and they did a little bit of everything. They did a little bit of Supreme. They did a little bit of Brigade. They did a little bit of uh, Bloodstrike. They did a little bit of Glory. Okay, so so uh, Youngblood. Did I say Youngblood? They did some Youngblood. Uh, and some team young buds. So we, we were utilizing them in every capacity and they were being utilized um, at Marvel. Uh, some on the X-Men books over at DC uh, on, on some of their marquee titles. But when I saw that the big guy that I'm committing the largest amount of money per page to suddenly going from doing one book at another publisher to now he's signed on to three, I see that this agency is booking him on his marquee value. And I want to make sure that my book is going to look good. I don't want just his name. I want the book to look good. So I was told specifically, very clearly stated, he will give your book priority, rolling my eyes, knowing that this is being told to every one of the physical, you know, the publishers who are going to be contracting his talents. The, uh, the, 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 we were assured he would be touching every page and he would be finishing pages he didn't necessarily pencil. 
and that he has his own um, team of uh, assistants that help him create the page. Now, we've covered that. The Neil Adams Studio did this. Jim Lee's Homage Studios did this. He did this on, on X-Men. So these are not foreign practices to the comic book world. But we were told that this would be, uh, that they would manage quality control, that you would never know the pages he did do and that he did not do. And they settled us down and really committed that, no, 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 we've gotten this taken care of. This guy was very good. He was very good at rehearsing this kind of what I will determine bullshit answer, bullshit approach. So who's the bullshitter? The bullshitter who's bullshitting us or the bullshitter us who accepted to accept his bullshit, right? So <clears throat> we move forward and we are going to track every page. We are going to, you know, very carefully, meticulously go over each and every one of these. I want to make sure I'm getting my investment back because I, I want this book to be good. This book was a marquee, this, this character was a very important launch character. The character had already been featured and well-received in multi-million copies. And, 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 and again, not everyone was selling these. I always lean into this. This is like saying that every NBA player scores 40 points a night. They don't. Okay. That, that's not true. Every book was not selling a million, certainly not books from Marvel, certainly not books from DC, certainly not books from within image. But again, the, the, these, these specific books I was publishing were hitting the million barometer what I like to say people, when there were the max amount of eyeballs, we were selling the max amount of sales. When the industry was at its apex, the largest amount of people buying, we were selling the most to them. Okay. So this artist, the pages start coming in they're looking okay. They're looking okay. And basically the first couple issues, we managed to keep the quality high. And we are assured that the covers are also by this gentleman. And it's good enough that we sign off and we uh, agree that <clears throat> in the initial offerings that the brushwork, the line art, the figure work, you know, obviously I do this for a living. I've got a good eye. I collect original art. I know what I'm looking at when I, you know, can see if something's been compromised. Did I believe at any time that he was producing every page? No, I, I really believed that there was a minimum amount of him touching the pages, but whatever they were doing across the board, uh, we had already announced him. We had already moved forward. The, the advertising was there before they jobbed him out to a couple other concepts or, or, or titles for other publishers. So we did our best to maintain that this was uh, a good looking book, a high, uh, that it would compare positively to the work that we actually hired him off of. And now I went back and looked at those books that got our attention and was actually saying, I think these are done in mass. I think these projects are done, you know, across, uh, maybe this book that we hired him from was also a compromised product. Okay. So we go forward and on the first three issues, we are determining that we are at minimum getting what we're paying for. We're not getting more and the covers are decent. So we put the product out. The product has a decent reception. Um, it wasn't until the later issues four, five, six, that you can go, oh, oh, we're seeing some drop-off here. And then we're getting told, well, we should probably start promoting another name within the book because the other name is doing such good work and we seem to be really liking it. So let's, and that's their way, that agency's way of building up their clients. So now they sold us on the big name. And now so what you're really seeing is this other guy's name. Well, no one knows who the other guy is and they want us to feature that name so as to, uh, so as to uh, give that 
name more weight. It would be like if Joel Gomez, who was doing all the backgrounds for Jim in in, in over a decade, or Carlos DeAnda, if their name actually got a credit rather than just being silenced. And you'd be like, wow, Joel Gomez does some badass backgrounds, okay? Well, you know, that's, that is valuable when the name is there and the fandom knows, the fans know, oh, I can interact with that guy. On, on Neil Adams, essential, best book I've ever seen anyone draw in my entire life. I've mentioned it here, Superman, Muhammad Ali. Terry Austin, who would go on to superstar fame as the biggest inker in the history of comics, was doing backgrounds on all of those pages with Dick Giordano doing figure inks. Terry Austin's work was so standout that you you could literally point out on every panel, every single steel girder, plane, car, basket of fruit, um, texture on the street, wall, building that Terry was inking because it was so prominent. And of course, Terry would go on to be a big name, but you saw it right there. That So, so that is, he is not, um, I believe, given the same credit that Giordano was given on that book. But in retrospect, he should be because his work, there are so many backgrounds in that book and so many functions of what he's doing with his line art that, that it's, it's almost criminal that he isn't the co-inker. But that's a case where he deserved to have his, you know, the spotlight shown on him. Well, we held off at that point promoting the secondary name for the reasons I'm telling you. I, I feel like they're using a Trojan horse m- method for us to utilize this one artist to then say, oh, really, this guy's doing it and he's good, so give him the name brand, and then we'll just settle this guy off and bring this guy in. Well, where things get interesting is this particular talent is going to come to the San Diego Comic-Con, as are many of the agencies, uh, artists that we use. I was telling you, we're using seven or eight of these guys. They are either um, jumping in on Brigade, on Bloodstrike, on, uh, on on Youngblood, Team Youngblood, Supreme. We are absolutely giving them work. They are hitting their marks. And you go, well, you're, you're you know, you're getting what you, you're paying out of these guys. We are. This, this, this takes a twist in a minute. Trust me, this is not a gripe session as, as, as much as it's a cautionary tale. And, and so when they all come to San Diego, they come up to our table to talk with us many times without the translators. One of the guys was desperately trying to send us a message and they were honestly, they were young. They were just really enthusiastic young artists getting this trip of a lifetime, traveling some as far as Brazil, um, Mexico to 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 be in San Diego for that weekend and we had scheduled a time that this artist and many of these others maybe all seven of them would come visit Extreme Studios in Anaheim California and we had a great it was the best office that we had ever had we had it for several years and it looked right into Anaheim Stadium the big giant skyscraper building that looked you could literally look into the stadium and, and see the games being played. And uh, this was one of the best locations that we ever had. It was just nothing but great memories. And we made some great comics during that time. After the show, the Monday after the show, this significant talent and the up-and-comers, let's call them that, all come for a visit to Extreme Studios. We have photo evidence of this. We took pictures of this particular episode. <clears throat> the one, uh, the, the, the overseas representative for these gentlemen 
was with them. The American representative was not. Um, the American representative is is a is is a kind of a repulsive guy. Had burned uh, all sorts of bridges, but had rode this latest batch of talent back to pro- to to prominence because they delivered. They got the job done again. Their big name was big enough to marquee on several different talents. These young guys, we were helping make them shine because they would give us their work and we would give them the very best color that was available in comics at the time coming out of the extreme color department. And there are, we would just render them up. We would put the proper finishes on the hard effort that they gave us and put them in the very best light. Again, giving them great portfolio reference for them to share and, 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 and to, you know, Add to their resume. And 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 again, as far as we know, because we're paying them all, all of them, very generous rates. The, the best deal, the most generous deal is going to the marquee talent. And, uh, and, and so in the afternoon of the Monday after San Diego of, let's call it 1994, we sit down with the marquee talent. And we put the books at that point, we've done like, you know, four or five of these books. We put them in front of the marquee talent. Um, he is uh, very earnest, and this talent is very sweet. And he we he has toured the whole studio. And my office had a giant meeting room in it, and it was very open. All the windows are open. The blinds are up. We you know the sun from outside in the Anaheim Stadium is is beaming in the office. Again, we have photos of this. And this uh, marquee town and his white in his white tank top, and and a lot of them had different like sports memorabilia that they had bought while they were here. Whether it was Padres from San Diego or Dodgers or Lakers gear, they were you know really caught up in the Southern California experience. We put these issues specifically of this book in front of this gentleman, and we asked him to point. Uh, which pages that he had done. I was curious artistically which pages he had specifically penciled, inked, finished, whatever. Much to our shock, it was no, 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 no. I inked that hair. I'm like, wow, okay. So, and we made a note. And again, I was speaking with Matt Hawkins and even the covers. We said, so, so did you draw these covers? No, I no draw these covers. And I'm like, wow. Like it was like nothing I had ever experienced just full on. Uh, I mean, th- th- this gentleman was not, uh, it, copying to doing any of the art that we had paid for his marquee name. And again and again, we, 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 we grabbed and, and, and put pages and, and, and he, he said, I did that face on issue two, and I did that face, but I didn't do that cover, and I didn't do that, and I didn't do, I mean, this is, again, we've got almost 100 pages of material in front of him, and, you know, good for him. There was no uh, mistaking what he was saying. We asked through the foreign representative to confirm, and and there was there was this idea that, that we were going to be enraged, and we were going to be very angry, and, and all of the other, the seven, the other eight uh, who were gathered there were witnesses to this, and look, I... The work was done. It was working. Whatever magic, and and I, I I hasten to say it, but you're gonna you're gonna understand very soon why I embrace this certain term. This was a sweatshop mentality. Mentality, and again in the '90s, whether it was Nike shoes or Kathy Lee Gifford sweaters, um, 
that there was accusations constantly that these were being made in sweatshops under the worst conditions, you know, in, you know, tables right up next to each other, grinding pages out, you know, with, with very little distinction or personality. And then one name being signed to them and they go out the, they go at the door. It's, it's the most egregious way that you can mass produce this stuff. When I refer to Neil Adams and his studio doing what he's doing, I'm not talking about a sweatshop. That is a studio jam, you know, uh, system where there are so many different hands on each page that 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 you know a Bob McLeod inked figure, a Neil Adams inked you know face, a John, Joe Rubenstein figure and face all on the same page. It it just it got one you know denotation as the tribe, okay, or or crusty bunkers, okay. So, so this isn't that. That's not sweatshop. That's jamming. We are looking at what is is starting to appear to resemble a kind of a sweatshop sweatshop promotion uh, production entity that we've encountered. Now, who's what are you going to do? You're going to argue with the results? Well, I actually thought that the results were getting less and less impressive, especially given what I had invested in. And Look, number one books are the easiest to launch. Should they look great? Yes. But should your issue four or five be, be better? Yes, they should be. Um, you know, and 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 so so we had this um discussion where the artist literally in front of us with multiple witnesses denounced doing any work on these books that bore his name. And uh, you know, even some of them we had start putting the word studios next to it to communicate. So we weren't enhancing maybe one specific guy that they wanted us to, because I didn't do a contract with that one specific guy that's now come out of the blue after issue two, that we're supposed to be pointing all the arrows towards and, and saying, this is why it's decent. Well, I really wanted this one guy. And one of the assignments he was doing was for Marvel. And I strongly suggested that his purest uh, effort was going towards those books. But so here's where it takes the twist. We they left. There was no animosity. Almost just our eyes were no longer wide shut. They were wide open, and we were, uh, you know, maybe maybe more educated and, and and better for it. And the seven other talents who were getting individual notification. Again, I'm not going to use their names. I'm going to keep this a blind item. We we like. They were nice. They were nice. I, I hasten to say that they were kids. Some of them may have been even older than I was at that point. I mean. In 1994, I'm 27 years old, okay? I'm running this business. I got 60 employees. Uh, we're doing 22 paid books a month. We, we, you know, are managing lots of talent, getting a lot of pages out the door. We have a full-time computer coloring staff. I have armed us with the state-of-the-art Macintoshes of 1994, 1995. We have a morning crew, an evening crew, and a midnight crew. And the midnight crew obviously got midnight pay. They got... They got the uh, extra wages. Some of those guys lived to work on that crew. But we have got no less than 15, 16 full-time color people on eight-hour shifts, putting out these books, getting them to press. We have letterers, you know, the inking crew, the pencilers. We were jamming. We were making comics and having a blast. So the fact that these this, this one group of people that had contributed to our comics were coming in and informing us that they... Uh, you know, weren't it exactly doing what we were hiring them for, wasn't going to rattle our cage. And the other guys seemed nice. And we kind of left as like, as to confused as to exactly who was doing what in, in this agency and with the representatives. And, and, the, and there was no animosity. 
But then things get weird. We get a call. We get a call a few weeks later. It's a very late call. Matt Hawkins gets a call. Eric Stevenson gets a call. It's from a translator that says he reps several of these young talents that we actually met and 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 you know took out to dinner and and you know socialized with that, that came for this studio visit and that they desperately want to talk to us but they want to talk to us outside of the arrangement with this the, the agency and that the, the translator says they are being um their efforts are being abused and they're being ripped off and the money isn't reaching them well that's a five alarm fire if you're a, a, a guy employing these artists and you are an artist yourself and you know how um, every dollar counts. So we took that very seriously. We set up a scenario with which that we would receive their call. They wanted, so the, the translator was reaching out to us to set up a call where whereby they would be able to reach us uh, specifically and, and and directly, directly. And, and so we set it up. I'm a part of this. Matt Hawkins is a part of this. Eric Stevenson is a part of this. Several of these gentlemen, these very nice young talents, not the big name who denied doing anything on any of the pages, but the lesser known guys who were knocking it out of the park for us. Some of us doing some really, you know, impressive work said, we, you pay the agency, and that is the agency was very clear with every publisher. You pay them, and then they distribute the foreign payments because so many of the uh, the, the the talents were uh, overseas, and so that is the arrangement that we entered into and that we honored. But we did so with the understanding that they would also honor that arrangement and pay that talent exactly what we have established. And they are on the phone telling us that they are getting less than 25% of the page rates that we are giving them. Less than 25%. Now I'm pissed. Now I'm enraged. The next day, you you better believe we are setting up a contact with the agency and the representatives and telling them, what's going on here? And, and they were very scared and said that they would be willing to, because we got to get to, because we understood the cost of them reaching out and making this call to us. Each of them said, we will work for you under another name. Would you hire us directly? I said, absolutely, my commitment is to you and the work you're doing. Your agents are not drawing. Some of them were actually in a physical, uh, in the same physical space as the overseas representative. Like I said, who would seemingly go up and down the, the let's, let's call it kind of what it was made out to be from these gentlemen, a sweatshop. They all sit at their tables. Some of them slept on the floor producing this work. This is how they were able to make, make, make their deadlines. And, and we are to believe now that they are receiving uh, at, at best 30% of the rates that we are paying for these pages. That, I mean, that means the agency is taking between 60 and 70%, no, 70% of the page rate. And that is just uncalled for, frightening. I did not know how this had gone on for so long, but because... They were representing so much talent. It was only a matter of time before the crash and burn. And so when this talent said, the fact that we're telling you this is going to get us in a lot of trouble. So if we leave this agency and this arrangement, 
would, would you be able to pay us under a different name? We would be, you know, published under a different name. And I, I said, 100%, I would publish you under a different name in order for you to continue to do the work that you enjoy, the work that you love, and to get 100% of the payment, given that it was very clear, these very nervous talents, almost trembling over the phone, very nervous, the translator talking as fast as he could as they spoke to him. Again, the translator sets up the call, reaches out. We set up the call. They are making this outside of the agency. They contact us and I go all in on, I am dedicated to you guys doing the work, not this agency that is stealing from you. So, you know, at this point, I am trying not to rattle a whole lot of, um, you know, ruffle as I'm, I'm not, I don't want to ruffle feathers. I want everybody to just continue resuming what they're doing as peacefully as possible. We have enough contacts in the business. There's no shortage of talents. If we were to lose these guys, it would be unfortunate, but I really felt for them. They reached out in a, on an emotion, in an emotional manner. They felt like they were being stolen from and ripped off. And I embraced, um, helping them do better. And, 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 and Matt and Eric, we were all on the same page. Again, this is very well-documented period in the studio's history. So in fact, you guys, some of them continued to draw for us under assumed names, under new names. And I'm not going to expose those other, there's, there's so many reasons why I'm keeping this a blind item because ultimately what happens is a year later, we, we obviously, we don't fulfill, we, we break off the contract. It's, it's egregious. We, we, we believed everything these artists told us. We have every reason to believe that they are telling us the truth. And when we press, uh, the agency on it, they were blown away. They, they were not, these guys had done a great job in circumventing the control that was being asserted over them. And by reaching out and, and, and contacting us, contacting us directly, they were able to, you know, kind of had the element of surprise because there was not this prepared answer. They really did act like it was an insurrection by these artists. They were enraged. And the best they could do was, well, they're lying to you because they want to set up their own shop. That's none of my business. It certainly didn't seem that it was coming across like that. And having physically interacted with so many of them during that, you know, post San Diego, I mean, again, they talked to me. They, I told you in San Diego, they're trying to talk to me. They're very nervous, but I believe in San Diego in person is when they wanted to tell me this, but they never felt good about having a time to isolate us because the overseas um, talent manager was always looming. And who knows, maybe one of them was going to betray them if they, you know, were part of the meeting. So they were very, you know, very quiet, very polite, had their Dodger gear, had their Laker gear but waited until they returned to get this call through. So we kill our relationship with this agency and we start working with so many of these artists on a one, on, on a, you know, one, one-to-one basis. And we have to start crediting them under different names so they can't be uh, chased and stopped and halted by the agency who's saying, Hey, you had a contract to use so-and-so and only, and so-and-so can only work through us. Well, if so-and-so is, drawing things under an assumed name. And this is also, I mean, let me give you some big names in comic books. George Perez, not, I'm sorry, <laughs> right off the bat, I'm wrong. Rich Buckler, Jim Starlin, two big names who have worked under assumed names for Marvel and DC, whether it was contract disputes or protecting, you know, their interest in not wanting to be punished. They drew stories, covers, Interiors, all under assumed names. And that's just two of the big guys of my era. Jim Starlin, 
and uh, and and Rich Buckler. No, I'm not going to tell you their aliases, but they're out there, and, and maybe we'll cover that in a in a in a upcoming episode. But but for this purpose, we continued our relationship with the artists. They were good guys. It was good to know that they were getting the money 100% now. And you could see it in the work. I, I got to be honest, the work got better. They no longer working under the same conditions. It got better. But we cut off that relationship. Why is that important? Because lo and behold, I get a lawsuit. I am sued for um, unpaid wages, all this crap, all these lies. Uh, and and, and uh, I'm only telling you this because I won it handily. I, I won the victory. Um, that maybe having your key guy come into our office and physically tell us that he did not draw anything is not the best item on the menu for you in, in case you're going to try and sue. But their desperation sat in. Um, I think things were starting to fall apart. You can only imagine maybe they were, maybe these guys are calling Marvel too. Maybe they're calling DC. We don't know, but they called us. And, uh, and so we, uh, we, we, I, I got the, the, the lawsuit from the agency and we were able to not only um, defend ourselves that there were no unpaid wages. In fact, we had the case that we were misrepresented that this one artist who we were told would be doing a primary amount of work and touching every page did not, in fact, touch a single page. Let me jump you to the end of this. Um, this guy and his smarmy attorney got uh, reamed by the uh, judge in, 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 in the case, and I got... A judgment against the agency of sixty thousand dollars because of the lawyer bills they racked up on uh, on me, um, because of the misrepresentation that they did um, uh, of their of their talents and uh, of the talent that they represented. But the judge gave me in uh, heading into the new millennium, he gave me a summary judgment that gave me $60,000 in damages. My attorney was so excited because he really thought these were some really bad people. And he is a family law home attorney in Fullerton. I had had a couple of LA guys and that's an entire other episode. And you give them $25,000 as a retainer and two weeks later they burn through it. And you're like, what? And you know, even if you could afford to keep paying that, why would you? And one day out uh, at a dinner with my in-laws, and my in-laws' best friends, of whom I had known as long as I've known my wife, sweet people, they were friends of this family, always around. He said, Rob, I'm an attorney. I, It's just the law. Give me some of your cases to look over. He, uh, local family attorney, not big, you know, big, big, shiny um, law firm in LA, you know, on, on Wilshire. N n no big bells and whistles. Just a guy who knew law. Really had done... He's done his job for a long, long time. Looked at, said, look, look at the lack of numbers in my filing on my on my lawyer, you know, code. Every lawyer has a has a number, has a code. He said, Rob, all today's lawyers have so many more numbers because they're new. This is how old I am. This is this is this talks about how long I've been doing this. So, really great guy. He he went out of his way to express to me this judgment, this piece of paper that you've been given by the attorney. You can walk into any convention that this agency sets up at. And you can take everything that qualifies under this 60,000 judgment. If you believe they have $60,000 worth of artwork, displays, if, if fixtures, tables, posters, you can take it. We will go in. You you can have an officer who can uh, you know back you up because this is a 
you know, a judgment from the bench, a bench judgment. Why am I telling you this? Because I said, I'm never going to do that. That's never going to happen. I'm never going to utilize it in that way. Um, I have uh, been a polarizing and controversial figure for reasons that I will never truly figure out. Um, but the quick answer is that I was super young and super successful and caught the attention and um, envy of many who thought, who sought to throw uh, stones and darts at me. And, and, and that's probably the easiest, the Occam's razor answer. The most simplest answer is the truth. But I did not need the site and the scene because he was like, Rob, let's do this. Let's, let's arrange this. You got all these conventions coming up. You can do this in Chicago. You can do this in San Diego. You can do this wherever you want. You won this judgment over this guy. You can go in and you can seize assets to pay off this $60,000 because he says, I've already said, how do you intend to pay this? And they said, we don't. So we already had their answer that they don't. I said, Larry, the judgment is good enough for me. I don't need to go in and seize anything. And, I, and it would be really bad visual for me to be seen on the floor of Chicago, of, you know, Seattle, of San Diego, in Anaheim, anywhere to, uh, to, to, to exercise this. Now, over the years, this guy, I feel like he forgot that I had this judgment against him and his agency. And it wasn't so long ago that on Facebook, I jumped in as he was giving an opinion and I said, you wouldn't want me to exercise that bench judgment against you, would you? And boy, did that guy completely shut up and go back into his snail shell. Um, because look, here's the deal. We were, he grossly misrepresented the talent to us. He clearly stole from his talent. We established new relationships on the other end with this talent independent. And um, when he, knowing that he was losing a great deal, the golden goose had been, you know, killed from, for, 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 for his purposes, because I don't believe Marvel and DC were paying the rates we were paying. I was, as long as I was getting the product and I was getting the quality, I was happy to. But when we, when he, uh, found out that that was ending, he decided to go ahead and do his best to try and sue me. Can I tell you that having that guy in our offices denying that he did everything was the key that won me the case? It is. It is the 100% most important aspect of why we won the case. The call from the translators was the, and the fact that there had been some severing with the foreign representative and the American agency and their connection also uh, helped the case. I mean, it was a house of cards. It all fell apart. He threw up a Hail Mary lawsuit. We actually countersued one, got a judgment that 20 years later, I have never looked to act on. It's just, it's just, um, why would I be taking artwork from guys who didn't know that they, you know, it, it's just, it's just not a good look on any level. Whatever I would seize, I guess the best thing I'd feel comfortable seizing would be, you know, the fixtures and the display elements, but that's not going to ever add up to $60,000. And in the, in the meantime, if I took artwork off that table and said, this is mine, you know, uh, then I'm hurting the artist. So I defended myself, got a judgment that was ind indicative of their bad, uh, business practices, but you've never heard of it until now. Cause I never told it till now. Cause I've kept it, you know, securely hidden and haven't shared that one with you. So this blind item has always been a very um, interesting one as far as I'm concerned in, in, in that I got the satisfaction of beating this. Uh, what I believe I encountered was, was some, some really, you know, shady behavior, uh, who then tried to throw up their Hail Mary. We countered it. We got a judgment for a significant amount and did not utilize it because 
that wasn't the end purpose. The end purpose was to, you know, basically beat the false act, the false narrative, beat the false accusations and hold the shadow. Did this person know that I could have done this? Yes, absolutely. They did. I can only imagine, uh, you know, maybe the concern that they had, but again, the power of the press, you know, who would have come out looking like the bad guy there? Me, hundred percent. Wasn't necessary. Didn't need to do it. Had it, have it still looked at it, looked at it the other day. It's a, it's a funny, very, very decisive judgment against the poor business practices of this person. But that being said, uh, you know, there's your blind item. Kind of, kind of, the, the good news is that we established great uh, relationships. And yes, all the way through 1998, I was working th- with these, uh, this, this overseas talent and, and they worked under different names. And maybe you had enjoyed their work under a different name prior to this happening in 95, 94. And then we just continue to engage them. And hopefully their, their families benefited from it. They benefited from it, having good, honest, direct representation. So that is today's blind item. That's the first one I've ever done. I have a couple more uh, that I will throw your way. I hope you are interested and you are entertained by these. But I want to wrap up today with a beware of the false hype. Beware of the false hype. What am I talking about? Okay. So I, I, I last week, some of you guys are on these comic book apps. We all know that the money is pouring in to comic book collectibles, original art, comic books, CGC, CBCS, all of the grading, um, you know, uh, 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 processes, all of the slabs, they're, they're just, they're going through the roof that the money has entered the collectible market in a huge way. And it's given rise to these apps that add as that they, they act as speculative devices, getting you to, you know, pick out different books. And you could say, well, Rob, you did the same thing with your podcast. You told us which books had Agatha Harkness. I am telling you my passion in those characters and seeing if you should check them out. Often I will tell you, get the file digitally, get it on, on Comixology, get it, you know, through, through, uh, one of the Marvel Unlimited, um, uh, it's, they're, they're so affordable to get if you want to just read the great stories, but these apps are about the collectability. And so here's, here's what's going on. This, 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 this is where it all tracks. One of the apps came to me last week. I have a subscription to several of them. I'm not going to say which ones. Again, keeping them kind of semi, giving giving some protection to, to, the, to these practices because these, these are new and maybe they don't know better. But one of the apps said that X-Men number four that was out in 1991, uh, X-Men number four, uh, the first appearance of Omega Red was being heavily speculated on because of the rumor that Omega Red was going to fight Falcon and Winter Soldier in episode three. And I'm like, I I didn't hear this. I didn't hear this at all. Well, like so many of you, I'm like, I'm reading that 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 the speculation around X-Men 4 has has gone through the roof now. Now, so much so that they said the rumor has fueled sales on eBay that we've tracked 104 different sales of X-Men 4 have occurred in the last week as we write this, you know, market update on this app. And uh, the record price paid for a X-Men number four from 1991, the relaunch with with, with Omega Red featured in it, uh, the record number, the highest number price paid for one of these was a 9.6 and it went for $406 just this last week. So, so 104 sold that they've tracked that, that, that exist that are being speculated on because of this rumor. 
and one sold for $405 that was a 9.6 CGC slabbed copy. Okay, great. Got the data. Well, now it's time to go, what the heck is this all about? So I do what many of you do. I Google. I Google Omega Red. I do Google Omega Red Falcon Winter Soldier. It comes up. Where did this come from? Well, here it goes. One of the rumor sites, and I, we should caution against those too, talks of a guy, an anonymous user on 8chan. Now, 8chan has been highlighted in an HBO documentary called Into the Storm, and it is like the underbelly of the 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 uh, the, the internet. It, it is really super seedy. It is the wildest of the wild west, the black Wild West, when I'm, in, I'm in, instead of black, I'll use dark, the dark Wild West. They, they call it the dark web or the black web. I'm calling this the dark, uh, the dark Wild West. 8chan is, is kind of uh, based on this documentary that I am watching into the storm about 8chan and their ties to QAnon. It, 8chan, it seems kind of seedy to me. It seems kind of, kind of, kind of, kind of, kind of seedy. And, 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 and very dark. Well, an anonymous user, no less, an anonymous user posted on 8chan that he had seen uh, episode three of Falcon and the Winter Soldier. And, and he identifies this anonymous user that he saw it in late February, that he got somehow got this advanced copy. And in it, Falcon and Winter Soldier go to Madripoor. Now, the location of Madripoor was a legit uh, news item leak Six months ago, that, that, that it leaked that Madripoor was going to be used. So that was out there. That was that was something that kind of you could build maybe more rumors on top of. And clearly this one did. Because it says once Falcon and Captain and Falcon and Winter Soldier reach Madripoor, they are going to battle Betrock the Leaper and they are going to battle Omega Red. And this is going to be spectacular. And the guy's seen it and he's telling you and he's describing what he saw. And he's got, he's got, uh, you know, William Hurt returning as, as Thunderbolt Ross in this episode. And, and uh, you know, all, all manner of Easter eggs. I mean, this guy piles upon piles. And that Baron Zemo at the end of the episode escapes on a motorboat, drives away from the shores of Madripoor. But not after Omega Red and Batroc the Leaper throw down with Falcon and Bucky. Okay? Well, this anonymous, and even, even the YouTube that I saw said, you know, we got, you know, it, we got to acknowledge it's, it's by an anonymous user. So so someone with no name, with no identity, with no trail, has told you that they watched an episode that isn't out for months, for, for yeah, yeah, almost almost seven weeks in advance they'd seen this, and get ready because it features Omega Red. This alone fueled this speculation that this app is reporting on that 104 X-Men 4 sold and one sold a 9.6 for a record $405. And if you watched Falcon and Bucky on Friday, that did not happen. You you know for a fact there was no Omega Red. There was no battle. There was no Batroc the Leaper. Not in the way that it was described here. There was no William Hurt. There was no Thunder General Thunderbolt Ross. You have been conned. Or maybe it's another episode where they go to Madripoor. I'm kidding. That, that my tongue is in my cheek. Beware what you're reading on the dark web, okay? It is, it is, uh, it is, it is not reliable. And I understand. I asked my buddy, I said, why, why are people so eager to go in on this? It's because, well, bottom line, and this is it, this is the, this explains the fever. And we've discussed the fever on Rob's observation several times. The fever creates desire. And then the desire creates sort of, uh, 
uh, uh, it quantifies when it doesn't deliver the, the desire and the fever then go to the acceptance of, well, I'm glad I have it because it's going to happen sooner or later. And that's what my buddy told me. They feel like, well, they got it now. They got it sooner. They got it sooner than later. And uh, I mean, you know, for instance, did I go out and buy uh, two months before I, my, the light went off in my head? I went out to my box of comics. I saw that I had the first appearance of John Walker. I saw I had all the early USH and stuff in my Captain America collection. But I went, you know what? I, I could use another. I could use maybe, maybe two more. So like you, I'm going to I'm gonna place this around Scarlet Witch. Uh, it was episode four of WandaVision when I realized, what am I doing? Monica Rambeau, all this stuff is popping up. These appearances are driving speculation. People are going to want more of this. If I want If I want more of this and I want it in a reasonable time, then I need to get ahead of it. So if I want a nicer copy or an additional copy than the ones I already have of some of these key appearances, I'm going to get on it now. Did I buy two first appearances of John Walker uh, at 50 bucks a pop online uh, uh, right after episode four of WandaVision? I did. And they were delivered and they were delivered in shiny mylar. I'm so happy I have them. And now I have more than, you know, the two that I had. I have four. I have four and that makes me feel good. I have three kids. So, you know, uh, more stuff to leave to the family. Okay. Now those books are going for 200 bucks or more, but you knew John Walker was coming. Wyatt Russell was casting him. That was trackable information. You just had to get out in front of it. We know that there's lots of cool stuff coming in Loki, the, the, whatever they're called, the time police. I don't, I'm not saying it right. The, 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 they were established in the Walt Simonson Fantastic Four episodes. Um, there could be all sorts of stuff coming in Loki. It's start to, it's time to like start buying stuff from Loki like now, because if you do it the week of, you know, it's going to, you're going to pay a lot more for it. But as far as following an anonymous user on 8chan that told you that Omega Red was going to battle Falcon and Bucky in Madripoor, that didn't work out for you because exercise some restraint, ask some more questions. Maybe don't take the risk. Or if you're having a blast and it was all the reason you needed to take the risk, I get it. I get it. I've, I've, look, we, we, we it, 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 it's like in the Bible when he says, those without sin cast the first stone and they all put their stones because like it's, oh, oh man, like Jesus just dropped the mic on us. He, he told us, hey, if you don't have sin and, and you think she does cast that stone, oh shoot, you've all sinned. Bye. Um, I am a speculator. I, those without speculation cast the first speculative judgment. Nope. Nope. Can't do that. Just telling you, be careful. Be careful. That's my warning, okay? Not a scolding, a warning. Be careful of some of these outlandish rumors. They exist just to get you worked up into a tizzy, just to get you to, you know, pull the trigger or, you know, maybe that guy had, you know, a hundred X-Men number fours and knew that by posting that he could sell them. Hey, there's crazier conspiracy theories, okay? After like our last episode, a bunch of people contacted me and said, thank you for turning me on to above majestic. I never heard of it and I can't stop watching it. And it's that, you know, QAnon uh, uh, documentary, conspiracy theory documentary that I, I invoked talking about the Godzilla, King Kong, um, you know, hollow earth stuff that that uh, the director is totally, you know, took a bunch of QAnon and, and, and deep conspiracy theories and turned them into great sci-fi, okay? And I shared it and you guys watched it. And so, so again, you know, uh, I, I, I just am trying to, uh, caution you guys and, and, and I'll end with this you know one of these websites two years ago had an item that had to do with Deadpool 3 and you know what I retweeted it because I wanted it to be true I'm, I'm going to tell you right now I thought man maybe this is 
this is leaked out and oh my gosh if this would be true this would be awesome and I retweeted it and you know what God bless him Mr. Ryan Reynolds texted me and said Rob what are you doing the next site that the next time that site is right will be the first time that site is right this is not happening I assure you um I was like ah all right buddy sorry sorry about that unretweeted it believed wholeheartedly that what Ryan was telling me was the truth and and the way he <laughs> like basically what are you doing don't do that like they're not telling you the truth the first the next time this site is right will be the first time in the history of the site that it's correct it was um you know so I'm guilty I'm guilty as charged I I have those without you without speculation in you cast the speculative judgment I can't again I can't so 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 that is my warning to you be careful that there are these sites exist just to get you worked into. I did a signing, a very nice social distance signing for the Deadpool 30th anniversary. And a guy came up to me just so elated. Oh, are you so excited that Jim Carrey is in Deadpool 3? The same site that carried that, carried the rumor that Ryan told me two years ago was not true. And uh, I laughed. I said, why are you congratulating me on something that's just a rumor? And you guys, and and. I had three guys who were working with me that day, two from the store that we were hosting it at, and they are witness when I said, why are you congratulating me on, on, on this Jim Carrey thing when it's just a rumor? Because I want it to happen. Because I want it to happen. I said, but but it's probably not true. It doesn't matter. I want it to happen. He goes, you know, there's nothing wrong with that. And I said, you're right. There's nothing wrong with that. And that is the age we live in now. We are a group of wishful thinkers. And... Uh, and who knows how that's going to turn out for us. That is something to be examined another time. So you got a blind eye to anatomy. Comic, po- comic culture is the culture. And beware of um, false reporting about episodes being seen uh, months in advance that don't contain anything remotely reflecting the truth. You guys, have a great rest of your day. Thank you for spending your time with me. Thank you for listening to Rob'servations. Um... I don't know who's more nuts, me for doing this or you for listening. Thank you for spending time with me. Thank you for spreading the word about this site. Tell your friends, continue to subscribe. Uh, always enjoy your your reviews and the positive word of mouth that you guys put out there. I am on Instagram at Rob Liefeld. Rob Liefeld, straight across. Got the blue check. That's me. On Twitter, I am at Robert Liefeld. Again, blue check, Robert Liefeld, full name on Twitter. I'm all over Facebook. I'm all over social media. I love talking to you guys. I love responding to you. Thank you for your enthusiasm. Thank you for carrying this show. I am so appreciative um, for every moment that you listen to me. Thanks for, for, for hanging out with me today. You guys, you know the drill. You are going to take care of yourselves. You are going to stay safe. And we are going to talk again real soon. 